0: Listen now for the word of God found in the book of Job, chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. When Job's three friends heard about all the troubles that had happened to him, they came, each one from his home, Eliphaz from Taman, Bildad from Shua, and Zophar from Nama. They agreed to come so they could console and comfort him. When they looked up from a distance and didn't recognize him, they wept loudly. Each one tore his garment and scattered dust above his head toward the sky. They sat with Job on the ground seven days and seven nights, not speaking a word to him, for they saw that he was in excruciating pain. This is the word of God for all the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: And for our second reading this morning, we are reading from the second chapter of Timothy chapter, uh, the second Timothy chapter four, verses nine through 18. Listen now for the word of God. Do your best to come to me quickly. Deimos has fallen in love with the present world and has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cratians has gone to Galatia, and Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is the only one with me. Get Mark, bring him with you. He has been a big help to me in the ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring along the coat I left in Carpus and Troas. Also bring the scrolls and especially the parchments. Alexander, the craftsman who works with metal, caused me a great deal of harm. God will pay him for what he has done, but watch out for him because he strongly opposes our teaching. No one took my side at my first court hearing. Everyone deserted me. I hope that God doesn't hold it against them. But Christ stood by me and gave me strength so that the entire message would be preached through me and so all the nations could hear it. I was also rescued from the lion's mouth. Christ will rescue me from every evil and safely lead me to my heavenly home. To Jesus Christ be the glory forever and always. Amen. This is the word of God for all the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, open our ears to hear you. Open my mouth to speak your word. And in all these things, we pray that you are with us. Amen. In her book, I Am, I Am, I Am, Maggie O'Farrell describes one of her near-death experiences like this. She says, I had been distantly aware of a person to my left for some time. It was a man nearing nearing middle age in hospital scrubs and a mask, standing with his back against the wall of the operating theater, just outside of my field of vision. And he was not taking part, but watching, just watching, his hands behind his back like someone in a tennis match. I wondered fleetingly what he was doing there, hanging around at the fringes of an emergency cesarean section with apparently nothing to do. But then the events overtook me, and I stopped wondering about anything at all. I still don't know who this man was, and I never will. His scrubs were beige, everyone else's were blue. Was he a hospital orderly, a surgical student, a porter, a nurse? I have no idea. What I did know... At the time of our encounter in the operating theater was three things. The baby was out and somewhere over in the corner, screaming and being attended to. That I was desperate to lay eyes on him. And three, I was in trouble. My heart was suddenly galloping as if trying to outrun whatever it was that was catching up with us. My husband was being gripped by the arm and hustled away by a nurse. The floor was awash with blood and people were running. It's never a good sign, i found, when medics run. On the whole, they are an unflappable, rational breed with deliberately neutral demeanors. It is only when you see this facade slip, if they hurry or raise their voices, that you need to worry. The doctors on the other side of the hastily erected curtain were treading red shoe prints as they worked. One young woman from Northern Ireland was panicking, shouting, I can't, I can't, I don't know how. The anesthetists, who, up until a moment ago, were sitting next to me chatting and joking, were now standing, watching what was happening over the curtain. Their faces were still, stony, careful. One adjusted his half-moon spectacles and did something to the clear, suspended bag on a drip stand whatever it was, hit my veins almost immediately, and I felt myself veer sideways, like a train diverted to a different track. I felt something like a fog blow over my brain. My eyes rolled back in my skull. I saw the ceiling tiles move above me like a conveyor belt. Whatever happens, I had said to my husband over and over again, stay with the baby. And he is keeping his promise. The problem is I can't see them anymore. They seem to have been taken elsewhere, behind a screen or into another room. And so I raise my hand. I'm not sure now what for, to call halt, to say enough. Either way, what happens next is that the man in the beige is suddenly there. He has stepped towards me, away from his wall, and he takes my raised hand and he unfolds it in both of his. I gaze up at him mutely. I had not known until that moment what a lonely experience it is to be in danger in the middle of a room full of people who are frantically working to save your life. I am not prone to loneliness. I have always been someone who leans towards solitude. But my overwhelming sensation had been, until that moment, loneliness, isolation, Bafflement. I was slipping away alone, surrounded by people. The man is wearing those spectacles that react to light so that his eyes are hidden behind brown tinted lenses. He has thick wiry hair cut close to his head. He moves my hand so that it is curled around his, and he places his other hand on top of it. His touch is infinitely gentle, but firm and sure. There is no way he is letting go, he is telling me, entirely without words. He is going to stay right here, and I'm going to stay right here. And I clutch at him with the force of a drowning woman. He nods once down at me, and a grave, slow smile lifts above the edges of his surgical mask. I wonder sometimes if I imagined him, if he were a figment of my panicking, threatened mind. He wasn't, though. He was there. He was real. Our interaction was entirely wordless. I don't even know if he spoke English. He stayed with me while they stitched and stapled me together again. He took the weight of my head and shoulders as they lifted me from the operating table to a gurney, and he was there when they pushed me into a ward. After that, I lost sight of him. I was suddenly surrounded by nurses who were swabbing me down, rearranging drip stands, asking about drugs, painkillers, transfusions. Someone brought in the baby. Did the man see me reunited with my son? I hope so. When he took my hand, he taught me something about the value of touch, the communicative power of the human hand. I didn't know as I lay there that I would think of him many, many times in the years ahead. The people who teach us something retain a particularly vivid place in our memories. I'd been a parent for all of about 10 minutes when I met this man, but he already taught me with his one small gesture one of the most important things about the job. Kindness, intuition, touch, and that sometimes you don't need words. Now when I first read that story in Maggie O'Farrell's book, I wanted to shout through the pages at the author, he was a chaplain, that was a chaplain. I know we have several chaplains here. Um, I felt so sure because I had done similar things during my unit of CPE in seminary. I flashed back to a moment when I was standing against a windowed wall armed with nothing but a little Bible pressed to my chest, while everyone else rushed around with useful things like syringes or monitors or drip bags or tubes. I felt like a voyeur, so I decided to stand as still as I could, out of the way. I tried to pray while the professionals did the important work, but in the end, my praying came to nothing. He died. And then as the doctors and nurses slowly filed out of the room, the room with a floor littered with trash and single-use wrappers, abandoned on the floor, a nurse in pink turned to me and said, thank you for being here. I was confused. I hadn't done anything. Then years later, when I read Maggie O'Farrell's memoir and I read this story, It suddenly made sense to me what the nurse had said. Unintentionally, I had given what was needed, a steady presence, reminding everyone that they were not alone. As theologians theologians call it, I had the great privilege of standing in situ Christi, in the place of Christ, the same way that priests stand in for Christ at the communion table. But you don't have to be ordained to stand in situ Christi. As Maggie O'Farrell teaches us, you don't even have to speak words. Both of our scripture readings this morning tell similar stories. When Job's three friends hear of all his troubles, immediately they go to be with him, to console him and comfort him. And when they first see Job, they don't even recognize him. So they rend their garments, they throw dust in the air. And then they just sit down. They sit down with him and weep for seven days and seven nights, not saying a single word because they saw that he was in excruciating pain. Have you ever had a friend like that who rushed to your side in a moment of pain? You probably don't remember what they said, but you do remember that they were there. And I could preach to you every week for decades, and at the end of it, you probably would only remember a couple of stories and none of my platitudes. But you will never forget when a pastor visits you in a hospital, how your church family checked in on you in your darkest time, showing you without words that you are not alone. God is with you. Oftentimes when those we love go through a time like Job or like Paul in prison, we rush in to say, what do you need? Can I bring a casserole? Can I walk your dogs? Uh, Can I get your groceries? Can I mow your lawn? Uh, Can I give you a prayer shawl? And Paul gives his friends a few of those requests. He needs those things, the coat and what's more. And they're certainly eager to do it because we're all so desperate to do, to fix to be the doctor in the operating room with the paddles. And the doctor in the operating room armed with paddles is absolutely necessary. But perhaps often what people need is not help, is not the right words. Perhaps what is most needed is the abiding presence of Christ. For someone to step in, in situ Christi, to hold their hand at the operating table, or to sit with them for seven days and seven nights in their pain. So friends, what do you need? Often what we need most is as huge and as simple as that, the presence of the Prince of Peace. So next time you say to someone, tell me if you need anything, catch yourself. Perhaps they don't need you to do, they need someone to be, to be in situ Christi with them. Amen.